Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the first of three very special podcasts featuring the very wonderful Paul Weller. Paul has had a completely unique career emerging in the heat of punk with a group that would not just define the times, but in the process would also become the biggest and most loved group in Britain, The Jam. After disbanding The Jam in 1982, he launched one of the most influential groups of the 80s, The Style Council, a group that in hindsight many people think were actually better than the band that came before it. And in the 30 years since, Paul has explored a solo career that has been driven completely by his own passions, his own obsessions, and by an incredibly singular determination. At the core of all he does is Paul's passionate espousal of and interest in music. Over the years, he has developed an encyclopedic knowledge of dozens of different genres, but more importantly, he still writes and performs with the enthusiasm of a teenager. His latest album, On Sunset, is yet more proof that his melodic abilities and his inventiveness have not deserted him. podcast we'll be exploring Paul's passions for music as well as his interest in fashion politics and the culture at large. Paul great to see you. Thank you. Please take me back can you remember when you very first became interested in music? Yeah it was in uh, November December uh, 1963 when I saw the Beatles on uh, Royal Command performance Uh, so I would have been about five maybe something like that Uh, and that was it for me. That was the start of my, uh, not only my obsession with music, but also with the Beatles as well. They kind of lit the, lit the, you know, the match for me. But then prior to that, I suppose I do have sort of vague memories because my mum and dad were into rock and roll. So I'd always hear like Elvis or Little Richard, Chuck Berry and all those people. But really the Beatles were the, were the start of it all for me. What was it about them? I don't know, they were just so different, you know. I was trying to explain to someone yesterday, someone younger than me, that, uh, that prior to them... There wasn't really bands, you know. It was all big bands. I mean, this was after rock and roll would happen. That was more like the mid-50s or whatever. So it was a lot of crooners and big bands and all your Paul Anchors and people like that. So there was no real bands, you know, certainly not any bands. I don't think there was any sort of groups like the Beatles and and someone, and people who were playing everything and writing everything, you know. So they were entirely different to what any, any of us had seen before. Was it the fact that they were British or did you not know that they were British? I wouldn't have thought about that. I just thought they were just amazing, you know. And that was it for me. I mean, I just... I've never stopped being obsessed by them ever, ever since, you know. But they really made me want to get into music. Not necessarily at five years old, but I was into music definitely from, from there onwards. And then by the time I was, like, I guess, like 12 or something like that, I got a guitar. My dad bought me an electric guitar, a little cheap one. And then that was it, really. And I met a mate at school, Steve Brooks, 
who was also into it, into music and playing. And then we just got together and that was it, you know. That was only one singular thought in my mind. That was just, I want to be in a band and make music. And, and I did, you know. What was the first, can you remember the first record that you owned or the first record that you bought with your own money? Yeah, uh, Sergeant Pepper was the first album I bought. And I bought it, it came out in 67, but I probably bought it like in early 68 because it took me that long to save up 30 bub or whatever it was. <laughs> and I can remember having like a sale in my bedroom of old toys and getting some friends around and sort of making some money from that, selling toys just to get the money for the, to buy the album, you know. And it was in the window of John Menzies in Woking High Street. Yeah, gatefold cover was out in the window like this, like a display thing. So I would just look at it. Every time I walked past that shop, I would look at it and think, I've got to have that record. And then, uh, and then I finally got it and, and just played it and played it and played it over and over again, you know. Finished the first side and got onto the second and back again. And that was my first album. And my first single I ever bought was uh, Wonder Boy by The Kinks, again, 1968 and borrow records from friends and me mum's friends and borrow singles for a few weeks and just play them to death, really, you know, and play the A-sides and the B-sides, you know. So I kind of know lots of sort of little mad obscure things, like, you know, I know all the B-sides to herd singles and all that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and that was it. The love affair started way, way before that. Though. So you start with this passion for the Beatles... Uh, and the Kinks, two of the, the greatest bands of the period. Mm. So how did your musical exploration continue then? Because you kind of started at the top. Well, it meant that I was into very... Uh, I was definitely into melodies. And I think even at that sort of young, naive age, uh, I, still, I could still see the, the songwriting, the craft of songwriting within those songs as well, you know. The words meant something. I could see the words meant something, and especially with Ray, Ray Davis. So uh, for me, it was all consuming, really. And, you know, clothes, haircuts, music, it all just went hand in hand, you know. I'd never sort of differentiate between any of those things. They all seemed to come as a bundle to me, you know. It was kind of like if you were in a band, you had to have a look and an attitude and, and a direction. And, you know, I always kind of thought that that was the way that bands operated. But that's, that's, that's kind of... That's a teenage attitude. And you're buying, uh, you're listening to Sergeant Pepper. You're not a teenager yet. Where does that judgment come from? Where are you getting this judgment to, to appreciate music at that age? Because it's quite a young age to, to like that kind of music and to appreciate it in the way that you did. Well, um, I don't know where the appreciation come. I just love the tunes and I love the melodies and I love the way it filled my head with images and thoughts and... Uh, and I suppose, you know, for, by that time, you know, 66, 67, there was this kind of whole psychedelic thing, which I was aware of, but I wasn't thinking about acid or drugs or anything like that. So it was just felt like very colourful music to me as a kid, you know, as a nine-year-old. It was just very colourful, you know, see Emily play Pink Floyd and all, loads of those great singles around that time. They just conjured up colours to me and, and textures and all that, you know. And as you said, the, the look of a band was very important. Yeah. Was it possible for you to like records by bands that you didn't like the look of? No, not at all. <laughs> at that time, uh, no, I'd have to like the way they looked, definitely, yeah. Because, you know, there's so many bands I love now, right, that I wouldn't even go near when I was a kid because they had long hair and a beard. <laughs> so by the time I was kind of like 12, 13... I was also like a sort of kind of, wasn't really a skinhead because I kind of missed that. 
I was into the suede thing. So then all the music was, um, you know, if I went to like a dance on the Thursday at Woking Football Club, right, all the music was either soul or reggae. So that was the next kind of big influence on me, really, hearing all that stuff, you know. So it would only be those that sort of music and maybe you'd have like T-Rex or Slade single or something in the, during the course of the night, which I also liked. But that was the next big influence for me, really, and that's always stayed with me as well since... Yeah, the whole influence of, of black American music. So your father bought you guitar. How old were you? Twelve, maybe. And before that, had you ex expressed any sort of musical ability at all? I would... Uh, me and my mate, he'd be playing drums on the pots and pans, you know, and I'd have, like, some plastic guitar, which I couldn't play the play, but we'd just make a racket and sing the hits of the day, you know. This was, must have been, like... 68 or something like that. I had enough attitude. It was just the talent that was missing for me, really. <laughs> I had all the right ideas. Uh, I don't think I was particularly talented. I could play and sing, but, you know, so what? It took me a long time to get good. There was two of us, me and Steve, and then we got Rick as a drummer and eventually Bruce. But we would play, like, every weekend, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday night. And we'd play, like, all the pubs and social clubs, workingers' clubs in Surrey, really. So just by playing every weekend, we got good and we would rehearse in the week and then we started to get better and tighter and... We played a nightclub in Woking, right, which was called Michael's, a drinker, late-night drinker, and we played there every Friday for two years, you know. So that was kind of like our, our apprenticeship, really, playing all them clubs and mainly playing the disinterested punters most of the time. So it was weird, right, because the first time I'd ever played to... People our own age was way later when we did the London pubs and started doing the clubs in town, you know. And that was just so nice, so refreshing to be able to play to, you know, other kids. Because prior to that, we were just playing to families and old geezers with their pints of bitter and, you know. So it was just a good experience, you know, to play every weekend and that's how we got our chops together, really. But was it something that you were doing uh, as a pastime or was this already your goal? No, this is no, what you wanted was to only, do? There was only one plan in my mind ever. Okay, so how old were you when you decided that that's what you were going to do? Well, probably like 13, 14, really. Once I met Steve Brooks, we were tight and we'd write songs together and just practice almost, not every day, but whenever we could. We did a couple of guitar lessons together for a bit and then, uh, then we packed that in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We just listen to play along to records like everyone does, I suppose, you know. We mainly did, like, rock and roll and R&B covers because they were 
reasonably simple to play three chords, four chords, and, and that was it, you know. And we'd write our own tunes, which were all totally derivative of Beatles songs. <laughs> and, uh, and we just developed from that, really, you know. Can you remember the first good song you wrote? It's a good song, right? I did when I was about 16, and I was going for a heavy Otis Redding phase. So I wrote this kind of solely sort of sounding tune, in my mind, uh, called Left, Right and Centre. That was probably the best song up to that point I'd written. And then years later, in recent years, Dean Parrish, who was a really famous on the Northern Soul circuit, he did uh, I'm On My Way, it was a big Northern tune. Uh, anyway, he cut a version of it, but it was funny to hear like a proper American singer doing this tune that I wrote when I was a kid, <laughs> trying to ape this soul R&B thing. Yeah. But they're nearly done properly, you know. Yeah. But that was probably the first, I guess, proper sort of song I wrote. Prior to that, they were just Beatle copies, you know. My name is Dylan Jones, and I'm here talking to Paul Weller. In the jam, how long into the jam did you think that this, this is going to work? I never had any doubt about it, really. I was kind of pretentious enough and arrogant enough or whatever it was to think it's only a matter of time. And I always said to myself at the time, you know, if I don't make it by the time I'm 20, I'm going to pack it in because I thought it would be over by that time. And then we got signed. I was 18. I was always very proud that my first single would come out when I was 18. And I always thought that was right. Because, you know, most of my heroes were all, they were all kids when they started, you know, very young as well. But, you know, at that time, I thought anyone over 25 had, had well, I'd had it, you know. I was never in any doubt that it would happen. And then we got into the sort of London pub rock circuit. We managed to get a few gigs. We did the Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road. Hope and Anchor, maybe, we did around that time. So a few pubs, the Kensington and uh, Olympia. Lots of boozers anyway. There was a big scene then, you know, mid-70s. And we managed to get onto that, which was a different thing altogether. We had to start really thinking about the set and then we'd cut some of the covers, we had to play some covers because I only had a few tunes. But it made me concentrate more on the songwriting and, and try and play our own songs. You would have been younger than most of those groups as well. Yeah, they would have been like in their mid to late 20s yeah. probably. You Ducks know. Deluxe and Dr Feelgood, yeah, exactly, people like yeah. that. You'd have been much younger. Yeah, I would have the next generation down from them. So where did that where did that confidence come from? I know your, you, your, your father gave you lots of encouragement. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. But that's quite an extraordinary thing for someone who's in a group, quite likes pop music, isn't writing very good songs. Where does that ambition come from and the confidence? And it is arrogance, I suppose. Well, I just had no other thought at all. There was nothing else on earth I wanted to do. And there still isn't, if I'm really honest. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel in subsequent years and all that stuff, which is always nice. And But I have no other passions outside of music, really. That's still what, still what I really want to do, and I'm I'm happy doing that. I don't wish for anything else but just to do, do that thing, you know. So there was never a question in my mind that I wouldn't do it, but in reality, we were lucky that we made it. It was quite possible we would have done the first album and then the second one bombed and we'd have been thrown out and that would have been the end of us, possibly. You know, I don't know. And people often say, what would you have done? It's like, well, I probably would have done what a lot of my other old mates from that time are doing, who have people else, other people who play guitar, and still be out playing the clubs, or not so many clubs anymore, but pubs at the weekends, because that's all I wanted to do, you know. So you, you're playing the pub rock circuit, um, those places you mentioned, yeah. Nags Head in High Wycombe, mm. maybe the Red Cow, places like that. Yeah, Red that. Cow, another big one, yeah. Um, 
And when did you begin to realise or understand that there was another scene sort of coalescing around the, the, the whole punk the same thing? Time? Yeah. Well, me and my mate, who lived, we lived on the same estate, we both read, separately, we both read this review that Neil Spencer had done of the Sex Pistols at the Marquee, right? And we both got in the pub that night, we are like, have you seen this? And they're like, yeah, we've got, we've got to go and see this band, we have to go and see it. Because, like you said, I mean, there was some great talent on the pub rocks circuit, but they were all, to us, they were all old geezers, and they didn't really have a look, it was pretty scruffy, and people with dungarees and all that sort of business. So, to see the Pistols, who looked, again, a similar, not comparing them to talent-wise, but in look, it was something totally different. We hadn't seen that before, you know. So I went to see them um, in September 76 at the Lyceum. They did an all-nighter with the Pretty Things and Supercharge, and then the Pistols come on about five or six in the morning, something like that. And it was just the most intense moment really and there was uh it was thinning out by this time it was getting early or late or whatever and um so there was just a little gaggle of of the pistols crowd around the front of the stage but we again we'd never seen nothing like it and johnny was amazing you know he's not a great singer as in most people's terms but he had this power in his voice and uh and his charisma but the band was shit up as well you know there's all that whole thing that they couldn't play and that but they could play all right and um, and that was it, really. I was always waiting for this signal. I was always waiting for someone to go, you know, fire the flare to say it was our time now. Because, you know, it was like in that mid-70s, or most of the 70s, it was pretty drab, wasn't it? You know, the three-day week and the blackouts and then the refuge um, strike and, you know, a lot of the country was just really wearing down anyway. So it was kind of, we needed that, really. We needed that scene, you know. And then after that, I went, went to the Under Club. They were the punk festival, two-day punk festival, and I saw the Pistols again, and I saw the Clash for the first time when they had Keith Levine, they had another guitarist in it. And I saw Susie's first gig as well with Sid on drums and whoever else was in it. And I remember walking down them steps down the Under Club, and they were playing a Trogs, an old 60s Trog record, right? And I was just like, I'm, I am home. <laughs> it felt like home. And then I just, you know, just to see all the people, the way people were dressed there as well, you know, and it wasn't that, it was prior to all that ridiculous punk uniform that came about a year later or a couple of years later with the Mohawks and all that shit. Everyone was individual. People were making their own clothes. There was a smattering of soul boys with their plastic sandals and the wedges and the rest of it. So it was kind of like, you know, there were a few people who looked a bit 60s, and I was into my mod thing by that time, so I just felt this is it, you know. This was this was the start of the revolution, really. Even during that period, which was uh, a lot about sort of a gang mentality, you always appeared to be. Uh, you didn't seem to be a great joiner. You you seemed to be determined to have your own voice during that period. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I think I've always been like that. Because I suppose like any scene, right, you always get a few key bands that lead the way and then you get loads of copyists or people or getting getting into it. So there was a tremendous amount of shit about it as well. There was a rubbish as well. And there's only the key bands, you know, the Buzzcocks, the Clash, the Pistols, eventually us, that came from that time. Not whether they're punk or not, it doesn't matter, but we all came from a similar sort of time. But I felt there was only a few bands that really... Uh, really took it and ran with it and went, went further with it, you know. How did it feel where you're in this extraordinary period of musical revolution 
And then quite quickly, you become the commercial band. You become the band who are having the hits. You're attracting a fan base that they're not. How did that feel? And what was, was there a tension between you and, and the guys in The Clash and the Pistols who you'd sort, sort of left behind? Well, I mean, the Pistols were over by that time, weren't they? Yeah. They only lasted a year, really. And, um, well, we did the Clash tour. We, we played with the Clash and there was us and them and the Buzzcocks were on a few dates, the Slits, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Johnny Thunder. Anyway, there was like a bill, anyway. And we did that. We did a few dates with them and then the, the stories we got chucked off it, which isn't true, right? We left because there was a big a lot of hassle about how much we got to pay towards the PA, right? We were... I think old Bernie Rose was trying to uh, trying it on a bit with us. <laughs> so it was a bit of six one half dozen of the other, you know. And uh, and then we did that stupid um, enemy, that was our first enemy piece, right? And we were saying we vote Tory and we like the Queen and all that stuff. And uh, so that immediately, a lot of those people were dissociated anyway. Sure. The Clash sending us a telegram complained about what we said, and that, which is fair enough, really, in reflection. <laughs> but um, I always felt affinity with all those, you know, not to say all of them, but the clash I did. Joe Joe was great. Joe was a good fella, and he was really... Uh, he was way older than I was at the time, and he was very... Um, not fatherly, but he was sort of, you know, be encouraging and just a, just a gentleman anyway. And the Pistols, I still see Glenn, and I still see Paul. So I felt we were all sort of um, fighting the same war, really. You know, Johnny would say something different, obviously. But, <laughs> but Mick, I mean, still friends with Mick. And, yeah. You know, sadly, Joe went. You know, I felt affinity with some of those bands. The ones that were good, I felt affinity with, and the other shite, I wasn't, you know. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.